Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today I'm delighted to welcome Joelle Taylor, an award-winning poet, playwright and author. A former UK Slam champion, Joelle founded Slam Ambassadors, the UK's Youth Slam Championships in 2001, and was its artistic director and national coach until 2018. She's host and co-curator of Outspoken, the UK's leading poetry and music club, currently resident at the Southbank Centre. Her poetry collections include The Woman Who Was Not There, Songs My Enemy Taught Me, and Kanto and Othered Poems, which won the 2021 T.S. Eliot Prize. In this podcast, she talks about fighting injustice and the life-changing power of words. Hello and welcome to the Art of Work, Joelle. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you as a guest on this podcast. Me too, me too. And also how awed I am by the incredible things you've achieved since, well, for the sake of listeners, I should say that we worked together at the Poetry Mm -hmm. Society about 20 years ago. And since then, you have done so many things, but among them won the T.S. Eliot Prize, which is like the Booker Prize for Poetry had your portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, been on the school, um, are, I presume, on the uh, GCSE school curriculum, um, all of which are kind of bastions of the establishment, which is definitely not really you. And I (laughs) I just wondered, did you ever have such mainstream aspirations? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, You know, all writers and all artists have the aspiration to be read or to be watched or be part of mainstream culture in a way. So it's kind of like, it's it's one of the sort of flaws of the trade, if you like. You can be as rebellious as you like as an artist. It's one of the kind of contradictions of being an artist anyway, because to be an artist or a poet or a writer, it kind of embodies the idea of maverickness, of kind of challenging things and being more dissident. But there's no point being dissident in a room by yourself so the quest is always to try and find I think um wider audiences but no I've never thought of myself as mainstream and (laughs) probably not even now I mean I I do get the impression people think it's a bit of a wild card me winning the Elliots I still think it is (laughs) I tell myself about it twice a day you know because it is really important um in terms of self-validation but also for other artists like myself coming from working class or more marginalised backgrounds. So what what effect has it had on your life? I mean, it's been, it was, so um, immediately there was just an incredible outpouring of messages from across the world. Um, and in terms of social media, so Twitter just absolutely blew up. And I was getting lots of personal DMs all over Instagram, all the social medias, and lots of very public statements as well, which was incredibly moving. And it just felt like um, my life changed in the sense that I felt, I felt I'd been seen, that I'd been here a long time, but um, for the first time I, I'd become visible in the room. And in that moment realized I'd always been visible, mm. um, you know, and, and in terms of just work, so of course, a lot of different sort of offers started to come in all very quickly. And for the first, I would say, for the first three weeks, it was just insane. And um, I was just doing as many interviews as possible. Um, and then, you know, you start to get more work offers. 
and it's the kind of offers you get that change because I've always been very busy, a bit of a Protestant work ethic. I've always been very busy and I really like, I think poetry is a verb. I think it's a doing word and it connects people. It has purpose. Um, but the offers have changed. So the big one for me was recently the University of East Anglia made me a poetry fellow and I went down and I did some masterclasses and a reading and, you know, some individual mentoring for them. And then they got back in touch to say they want to take my work into archives. Oh, so I know. So I was, and I've just moved house to a little flat by myself and I was about to throw everything away, like years of notepads and bits and bobs. And they were just like, no, please let's have them. So that's, that's a major change because it makes you start to think of yourself or the work, not yourself, the work itself as something that could be seen as part of a canon. Yes. You know, um, and also it gives a lot more free space in my flat. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. What did your family, what was your family's response? Are your parents still alive, Joel? Um, no, my mother's dead. My father hasn't responded. We're not in touch. Um, and my two brothers were very pleased for me, you know, uh, via WhatsApp. So they were sending like little cheers. I mean, you know, my two brothers are really proud and I'm very proud of them as well. Um, but we're quite a... Um, a sort of atomized family. I left home very young and came down south and then eventually settled in London. Um, and we've just sort of kept in touch via WhatsApp, but there's no sort of, there was no like massive celebration in that sense. Um, but I was with a chosen family, not to put my own family down, yeah. my chosen family, Anthony Naxaguru and Tom McAndrew, all of whom you'll know through Poetry Society or Connections as Poets. And we got absolutely munted. I mean, I was most drunk I think I've ever been in my entire life. I, I can't remember much about it. Um, but but um, we definitely celebrated. And so, you know, um, life did change, but it's been, there's a lot of fear associated with it as well. Because once you've got something like that, you call it the book of, Bookers of Poetry, which is how I think of it too, or the Turner Prize of Poetry. Um, well, then then you, there's a, a sort of like, well, well, it's going to end now. You know, the time is over. I've had my moment and it was fantastic. Um, and I think so the, the apprehensions about how, how do we take these, the moments of being seen and turn them into a whole film, turn them into mm. into something that light doesn't just shine on me, but shines to other people around me. Mm. Um, which is part of being a royal a fellow, a, a royal. Yes, I'm a, I'm the queen. <laughs> part of being a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, which is a massive milestone for me. Yes. Yeah, and and part of the reason why I was nominated is to be able to, you know, introduce the society to more queer artists and to more working class writers you know and to try to um elevate their work as well which is an extension essentially of the slambusters because mm. those same kids we worked with 20 years ago have grown up now and we're like, i know literally it's, followed them their entire lives it's so strange Joel, because if i look back there was that phone call from the mayor of london's office saying will you run Poetry Society, will you run a poetry competition? I thought, oh God, not another bloody poetry competition. <laughs> so I said, I thought about it, I said, no, how about we do a slam? And then look, look what you did. Look what you did. Mm. It's incredible. And all these, you know, not not just for you, because obviously you already had your own poetry career. Um, mm. I do remember those very early 
slams at places like the Oval Mm. Um, and and just feeling like the children's mum, you know, it's just, <laughs> yes. it's just an incredible feeling. And now these people like you are kind of megastars of this whole, it wasn't really, I mean, the, the of course there was the performance poetry world, but it was quite small when you started mm. out. It was yes, kind it was. of Jules and John Cooper Clark. I mean, you could That's argue right. whether people like Linton Kwesi Johnson, Linton Kwesi Johnson, but he was not quite, I mean, he was, he was a great performer, but he wasn't quite that. And yes. um, similarly with Benjamin Zephaniah. So it was pretty small at the start. And now it is this whole, almost like a new art form. Cause it's not even, it's not even the world of poetry slams exactly that which started in America. It's something rather different, isn't it? Can, can you say a yeah. bit about what you think something- yeah, well, do you know what I think it is? Um, because we're seeing it receding now. What it is, is that we put spoken word artists and rappers and MCs into schools and um, working often with the most um, disengaged from the school system, which is pretty much everyone, but in the most disengaged within the school system, certainly disengaged in terms of uh, poetry or literacy. And they were funky and they were fun and they were exciting and they were hard hitting. And they were using forms that the kids knew from music. They were making those strong links, some of them. Not me, obviously. Um, in fact, I did. I used to beatbox. <laughs> but, yes, I remember, actually. I remember. Oh. I'd forgotten. Well, we're all young ones. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, um, one of the ethics of Sandacidas is not just selling the poem and poetry. You're selling a way of living, a lifestyle. So it becomes exciting. So you're hitting kids on the back of the head with literacy rather than going, let's look at this lovely poem. And I think what happened there, and I started to see it in, in the mid-2000s, what happened there was um, we created not just the next generation of poets who were aware of the air and the stage, spoken word artists, if you like, but most importantly, we created an audience. So they grew up, and I started to see kids that I taught in school about 2013, 2014, coming to events. Mm. And because of their involvement, because they are seeing live poetry or spoken word or you know whatever you want to call these fusion forms they see it as a night out and in some of the events like when i outspoken the club i run with anthony and uh, karim kamar when they um we had it in the hundred club you had cabaret seating so you get this sense of a kind of music vibe which is you know quite uh, separate to the feeling you get when you sit in a theater so all of that engages a more working class audience And as you know, slam is not about who's the best poet on the stage, which is often reported. It's about about community and the poetry of urgency. And it's about what goes on backstage between the kids, the the, the relationships that were formed. And most importantly, the audience shouting their heads off. There was a lot of shouting, if you recall. (laughs) It was. It was definitely not your average poetry reading but I I think those early winners like um, Kayo Chingonyi and Jay Bernard and Anthony Aksaguru I think they went forward and they professionalized the scene Mm. in some way in a way that you know we were all putting on poetry events but they were ever so casual Mm. you know just turn up in your jumper and some jeans and be at the back of a pub Um, you know whereas they kind of started to think as the live nights as organizations because they've been exposed, I think, to poetry society, to apples and snakes. So they learned from watching us and made it so much more so much more professional. <laughs> it was just just incredible. And um 
I mean, you've talked about, it was in the preface to The Woman Who Was Not There, you say that words change worlds. That's so clearly a very, very central part of your philosophy, every aspect of your work. When did you first realise that words change worlds? Do you know, it was probably... um... You know, for first first of all, the words were all about me. You know, we're all right artists and narcissists to begin with. We're writing about our own thing or we're we're pouring digging out our own trauma. But when I went into a class and it was probably a primary school and they're very difficult kids. Very difficult. And I taught them how to rap and how to how to beatbox and how to work together in a group dynamic. And the kids changed in that class to being like reluctant learners. I don't know if you have been in a room with a lot of reluctant learners, it's marginally terrifying, you know, um, because it focuses everyone. And I've all, you've probably heard me say before, but that one of the things that's really important to this kind of work is the stage because it focuses everybody. We're all united in a moment of mutual terror that we're going to get up on stage and that creates this, this amazing supportive environment and all the other things, all the petty um, problems that we have um, seem to fade away. So I started to realize that words could uh, could do something, you know, some stupid rap about a squirrel on your head in the right mouths and then saying, okay, we've written two verses together and bet you couldn't write the third verse. You you four together write the third verse. And that was Kingsmead Primary School in Hackney who went from being bottom of the league to second in the league in, a, in quite a short period of time, in just a couple of years, basically because they suddenly realised that the kids could access education through through the arts in a really meaningful way, you know, um, which meant, it, yeah, so that's what it does. And, and I use it in, you know, obviously poetry goes in, when you say to people, yeah, I lead poetry workshops, then of course they're thinking about, the Marmite ladies, the kind of middle-aged older women who coming to, you know, with their extra cash to learn about some obscure part of poetry. But really, as you know, it's helping somebody to to be able to write English for the first time, to be able to vocalise how they feel about something, to make connections. Um, you know, poetry is a bridge in all kinds of different ways. So, um, and it, it constantly surprises me. It constantly surprises me what it can do, what it does to me, you know. And but especially when you empower somebody to to work on it themselves, and it doesn't need to be brilliant poetry to begin with. It just needs to be the beginning of a sentence, you know, that um, that you work on throughout your life. Um, so yeah, I think it it has a spoken word has an absolutely transformational effect on people. It empowers. And I want to go back to to childhood. I know you grow, grew up in, in the north and moved 13 times before you left mm. home. Um, what was your model of work in a working class family? What was your model of work as a child? And what were your ambitions? Well, I mean, my model, I guess, was my father, who would go out to work every day as a printer. I'm from a coal mining family, but he kind of broke the, um, the line, if you like, and wanted to be a printer. So he'd go out every day, go to work in that respect, and then come home and go to the pub. That's very normal. In fact, my grandfather would do the same thing. It's very standard. You work, you drink, and you repeat. My mum also, she had quite a few rows with my dad about going to work. 
um, because obviously it was considered during that time to be the woman needs to be the mother and supported. It, was, it might have been sort of during the period of, of 70s feminism, but that didn't really reach working class areas for many years. Um, so that was it, is watching people work very hard um, for no real reward. <laughs> mm. um, and I guess that made me think, well, why are we... You know, I, I don't know, I was so obsessed with words and with re reading that I, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be some kind of writer. Oh, I was really? Very, very clear about it. Very clear. No matter what was going on in the house, no matter how I felt about anything, there was always a book. And a book is a door. I've, I, I was just working in Brixton Prison a couple of days ago. And it's an amazing sensation being in a room of kind of, and it was a room with lifers. I can't really give any more details. They're in for life. <clears throat> and life in those terms is 99 plus years. Mm. And some of them couldn't read before they went into prison or write. So they had no real means of, of um, solitary expression, if you get, um, if you see what I mean. Um, and it was a really moving moment when they were all talking about now they write every day and they read and how a book is a door and they can leave, they're free. It doesn't matter where they are because it's got that kind of, that access, that portal. It's a portal. It's the most <laughs> sci-fi thing we've got, a simple yeah. book, take you anywhere. And you left home at sort of 15 or 16 after mm. meeting your first girlfriend in a fight. Uh, you'd been picked by your respective schools to fight each other and instead ended up snogging. And, and, How do you uh, even know this stuff? Yes, it's true. And, um, um, what, did you stay at, where did you live then? And, where, and presumably you carried on school because you, went, uh, because you went on to read drama at Kent, didn't you? So did Yeah, you so, so I mean, it was, it was a kind of, what we would call it, um, a fluctuating situation. So when I first went, left home, I lived in a council flat um, in this guy's house. It's so dodgy. In this guy's house, who was a drug dealer, and me and three other, two other girls stayed there with him. There was nothing awful going on, well, apart from drug dealing. But, <laughs> which, uh, but, um, but drugs are a currency when you live in poverty. It's just another way of... of, of edge funding you know it's they're just the bank managers of the estates so um i lived there for a while then i i can't remember the exact details but i ended up in another place in accrington but got asked to leave by these um pentecostal nazis my god isn't that jeanette winterson accrington was her pentecostal wasn't yeah territory it must be the pentecostal <laughs> capital of the uk then <laughs> just hunting down lesbians and chasing them out <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then several, many more places, uh, Burnley. So my living situation was never really, I wasn't really paying rent. It was kind of squatting. It was kind of just staying in spaces. And then during that time, I, I could sign on when I went to college. So I left school at 16 and um, went on a YTS scheme. Mm. Remember the youth training scheme. Mm. Uh, you'll laugh at this. My first job, what they put me in to do was to sell ladies' dresses. <laughs> No, seriously, a lady's dress from me. I just <laughs> looking absolutely perplexed. Okay, <laughs> they put makeup on me and they put a blouse on me. <laughs> what did you What did you wear in those days, Joel? I was a punk, so I had sort of a, a black Mohican, which obviously grew out to do the re the, the shop job. 
um, but I used to put, tie in lots of big rat tails, so it was post-punk in a sense. I looked a bit Sputnik, Zig Zig Sputnik, that kind of look, or the cramps. Um, and I wore a lot of makeup as well, but it was not protractive makeup. You know, it was, you know, um, inverted crosses on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Just the mark of the beast, yeah. <laughs> mark of the beast. But the point was, all the boys wore the same thing, you know. So it was quite easy to be undercover gay because obviously I wasn't out, not even to myself really. I can I did know, but I was it was not a good a good time to be out. But all the boys were running around in dresses and makeup and you know. Um so it didn't feel like I was particularly feminine, I guess is what I'm saying. And much more seriously, you talk in the um preface to songs my enemy taught me about the serious sexual abuse you experienced as an adolescent presumably that was before you came out and I don't want to go into the details but obviously it has fueled a lot of your work since not least Kanto and other poems because that sense of um body as battlefield is runs through yeah. all your work but without turning into Freud here what would you say the effect of that was on you and on the work you did? I mean, I mean, it certainly, certainly the early sexual abuse from sort of five, six years old, um, absolutely, it's hard to know who I would have been. And I've heard a lot of survivors say this because it becomes part of your identity. Once you, and it's a long process understanding what's happened even. Because you're so young, you're kind of pre-language. I know I couldn't write, but I could. I started to read. Um, and what it did to me is, is that I was disbelieved. And so at a very young age, I felt unloved by my family and rejected. And I never really recovered from, from that. So by the age of 12, um, I had a breakdown. I was violent, but I was also very violent toward myself, particularly toward myself. I mean, essentially... How it, what it did to me is it gave me a sense of injustice and that the people we love the most can still not protect us and do, do, you know, it's that shock that adults are fallible, I think, you know, when you're a child. But uh, it's also fueled my understanding, I think, of children. And I've never wanted a child myself, but falling into Slambassadors and, and this work, it meant that I, you know, I I believe in the, in the bodily autonomy of children. I believe children should be respected as children and allowed to grow and develop in their own ways. It gives you fire and fury, you know, and even if I think this might sound an essentialist thing to say, I don't mean it like that, but I think even women, if we don't have children, we are all mothers, all of us, and we will fight for these kids. Um, so it does that. But it's hard to know. It certainly didn't affect my sexuality. And I know that because the majority of women who were sexually abused are heterosexual, mm. you know, so it didn't affect them. And so I'm like, I was always probably going to be who I am mm. um, in that respect. But yeah, it, it affects you your whole life. It's a dream you can't quite remember, but it's always there, you know. Because it's... I mean, I, I had no idea that you were such a young child when it started, Joelle, and that is obviously absolutely horrendous. And 
you had a double whammy of, or you seem to have had with obviously being sexually assaulted, but also attacked for clearly being lesbian from mm. an early age. And that runs through Kanto and other poems, which is so blazingly brilliant. And it made me cry at many points. It also made me very sad. In a weird way, it made me nostalgic for the 90s and for what there was and this sense of solidarity and this sense that um, things were changing for the better. And obviously, you know, a lot has changed now. But you've captured so beautifully a sense of finding your tribe, finding or finding one of many tribes, but finding um, a family in mm. a sense. And um, can you just tell me a bit about kind of what it was that fired that book? Um <clears throat> the I, mean, I think the first thing was a kind of grief. <clears throat> so it came from a commission from Apples and Snakes. And they're a performance poetry agency. have been going for about 40 years. And they, they, the commission was to write a 10-minute poem around responding to the theme of protest for a huge happening event they were putting on called Rallying Cry. And there were other poets who were commissioned, about five of us, to do this. And um, I was on tour at the time, and I was in Singapore, and I think I just read another Facebook, another shocks you get on Facebook where you suddenly somebody has died. And it just propelled me into thinking about all of the women that I loved and knew and all of the loss and how we had all atomized. And also reading quite a lot on Twitter about what you're talking about, about the identity politics and about the atomization of our scene, of our peoples. Um, I can't remember a time when we've been so at war with ourselves, you know, <clears throat> and that grief um, made me want to write the, the the long piece, the set of cantos, canto. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> from that, it just, um, I performed it at um, an event, a completely different thing. And Saki books were in the audience and, they were, and it was down to Len Gaspar from Saki books. who was just like, I want you to write a whole book about this. Can you do it? And so really it was her pushing me to write this poetry collection that made me start to think much deeper about what I'd lost and what was missing and what was missing in the wider community, the widest scene, um, <clears throat> which brought me back to the Maryville, you know, straight back there. Um, and it, well, the best thing about the book, to be honest, Christina, is that in a sense, wherever it's gone, there's been a, a bit of Maryville has felt like it's come back because um, all the older dykes are coming out and going, oh, yes, you know, and the younger ones have been like, wow, why don't I have that? I want that, mm. which is so exciting because you're getting intergenerational conversations between sworn enemies who are chatting amiably about whether or not we could set up another bar, mm. you know, so it's, yeah, it, can, it comes from grief and it's formed of love and it's a love poem. Mm. I know that most poets and writers are riddled with doubt, but did you have a sense when you were writing it of how no. good it was? Is... No, I, I refused to share it with anyone. The only person who read it, apart from Inua Ellums, who I work with as an editor, I wanted to work with him because he's such a genius in terms of his command of story and his ability to translate poetry onto the stage. So it, that seemed to make a lot of sense. The only other person, when it was all done, was Jay Bernard. 
Um, and we've been meeting on Zoom, having fictional dinners at Friday during lockdown. So Aww. just to kind of chase sitting all by themselves in a huge room. <laughs> um, so Jay took it and really kindly um, wrote some notes. Unfortunately, I'd already handed the book in when the, <laughs> the most important notes came. <laughs> but, uh, but we were able to work some of them in. So I didn't. I just thought I didn't tell anyone. I didn't, um, you know, people ask, why didn't you go to a big poetry publisher? And I was like, this is a book of just a story. And the story is a commission. It came from these people. Um, and I didn't think it, I also didn't think it would be seen as anything worthy of reviewing or prizes or anything like that. So I didn't think it mattered. In fact, I was quite scared of releasing anything on a on something like Picador with all kinds of expectations, you know. Um, but yeah, Saki were brilliant, absolutely brilliant at supporting me and supporting the book. I had no idea that it would go down like this, no. <laughs> well, it's absolutely wonderful. It's just, I, I think everybody should read it. It's just... It's just a work of such blazing imagination as well. It's just a true, truly original. And there's not very much, I mean, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, mm. as the Bible says, but sometimes there is. And I think you've done that. So my absolute heartfelt congratulations on it, Joelle. Thank you so much. Now, Benjamin Zephaniah um, said po that your poetry has a purpose, which it very clearly does. And one of the things I've noticed over the years of interviewing artists, but people who are exceptional in any field really, is that sense of purpose. But but it's a complicated thing because obviously, you know, every business now claims that they have a purpose and every youngster is, you know, they get their the mission, the mission, vision, values <laughs> and purpose of whatever company, you know, they join. And they're all meant to become kind of born again members of this company's cult in a way. So I, I, I'm a bit wary mm. of the word. However, I have observed over the years that the people who really do make a difference are very often the ones who have a very clear sense of what it is they want to achieve which of course isn't instantly apparent because we all develop and grow and learn as we as we go through life but if you were to articulate your purpose what would you say it was <sighs> to, to to write the lines between people you know these invisible connection points between people it's just try and trace them and it's about finding stories that are already there, you know. I mean, on a really basic level, to be really honest, I just want to be a writer. And I want to, mm. I want to use my writing to be able to travel and all of that on a very personal level and to be able to meet people and, and work in that way. But I'm driven by a sense of justice. And I know that's really self-congratulatory, but it's, it is, it is. You know, I'm, I'm not sure why else I would be writing except to draw attention to this thing, which doesn't mean that it can't be absolutely um, imaginative as well. You know, it's the difference between honesty and truth. I'd rather write an honest book than a truthful book. I want, you know, 
and like all writers it's about trying to trying to write the the indefinable the unwritten trying to find what happens everything's under the page already that's my feeling when i get get to the page it's already there like it's buried under a tundra of some kind and then the pen is a shovel and we kind of pull it all back and it's archaeology writing's archaeology like my, my like like michelangelo and the stone in a way exactly 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 that that it's already there so you have to get into some kind of state without being hippie about it i know all writers you know when you're in the zone what is the zone what is it a, are we tapping into this great, you know, the, the great unconscious? Or are we just focusing? Are we just concentrating for a minute? Are we listening to our own heartbeat and being and translating that as a kind of Morse code into different words? <clears throat> Who knows? But what I do know is that all the writers and artists I really respect who are so driven, they're not driven toward fame. They're not driven toward money. They're driven toward finding out what happens at the end of their book you know, the end of the poem. They don't know what's going to happen, the great ones. Um, so there's a sense of being an adventurer and a risk taker, I think, involved within that. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm driven. My purpose is to find out what happens next. Mm. <laughs> I think that's so, I, I, I love that response, but also I think it's so honest because I do think that um, injustice or the urge for justice is the impetus in all your work, both both your writing and in the, the workshops, the performance, the ambassadors and all the rest of it. You know, the kind of, you know, to use a cliched phrase, giving a voice to mm. those who don't have a voice. But I really like the fact that you are also honest enough to say, I just want to be a writer mm. and kind of, you know, make that it. Because <laughs> I did speak to someone quite relatively recently who who claimed that you know, he'd written this blurb about how his purpose was to help other people. And I thought, no, it isn't. It absolutely mm. isn't. You know, you, you just know. You, you can tell with someone whether their stated purpose matches up to, uh, you know, what they actually do. And um, I think very few people are motivated entirely by altruism. Mm. Um, I mean, you'd have to have no ego, really, yeah. at all. But also, um, I mean, I remember making the decision to try and get a book published in 2013 through Burning Eye, and it came about because I noticed that the kids I was working with respected more the other people who had books out, so they'd listen more. Uh, so it gave you yes. more kind of, um, they have to have something to look up to, to admire, to work toward. And it, because mm. everybody started publishing suddenly, I thought, yeah, that's the way to do it. That actually, and then, you know, I've been working with Lisa Lux, I edited her book. And one of the conversations we were having at the time, it was during the bombing of Beirut, she's living in Beirut, about whether it was more appropriate to write a book about it or to get out on the streets, you know, with the placard. Of course, it's really important to be out there on the street. But what I was saying is like, this book is a, it's a buried, it's a bomb, it's buried, and it lasts forever. So it's, an, it's kind of, it's long form activism. It will be there, mm. it will be there and remain and keep doing your work for you. So, you know, I do see it tied yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that um, most of us have, there are writers, and I know quite a few of them who are very, very much all about the writing. Um, and, you know, some to the extent that they put that above other people in their lives. Um, and then there are those of us who 
feel an incredibly strong pull towards society and politics and how you make a fair society and then the writing. And it's quite a difficult thing to navigate those two things because they are quite opposed in a way, the public and the the public and the artistic are quite opposed. And, and the danger of what you're talking about in terms of poetry as activism is that it becomes poetry as propaganda, which it can do if it's not brilliant. So the number one rule surely has to be make it bloody good. Once you've made it good, you can do anything you like. You can say anything like you like, you can break any rules you like, but if it's not good, it's, it's opposed. Yeah. I think, I think with working class writers as well of my generation, for me, it was always most important what I was saying the message and it's only as I've got older and learned more and more through through teaching you know because it's, nobody taught me poetry so I had to learn about poetry in order to pass those skills on to to the kids so it, it, it took me a while to really start to understand that pushing language was as important so one of the stories that I tell kids even now or whoever you're working with the difference between spoken word and poetry is spoken word is generally speaking around two to three minutes long and it's an answer. It's all about answers. You stand on the stage, little narrative arc of a journey, here is my last two lines, that is the answer. Poetry is a question and that's what it does. But it took me many, many years to start to understand and to fall into that because um, I I see the journey for me artistically as, as being traveling the bridge between spoken word and what is written, what is published, and finding the commonalities between the two so that the more I push language on the page, I'm able to express it better in performance so I can still keep my core audience. I will say, I will say, I had, like I mentioned earlier, I went into Brixton prison and I was rehearsing Last Poet Standing, which is something I wrote bloody 15 years ago and it takes a lot of heart to perform and I really don't mean it anymore <laughs> it's very very hard it's full of rhymes but it's one of the prison poems you know it connects and I was just I was forlornly sort of rehearsing it got into the prison and there were posters of me everywhere in a three-piece suit conto up there and they brought it into the library and they were like oh no just do just do the the, the conto I was like what I'm being accepted for who I am in this environment. I don't need to, because I always believe that poetry must become the shape of the vessel that holds it. So if you're, if you're in a rowdy club, don't be saying very intricate Forrest Gander poems, you know, because you will feel like the worst writer in the world. Well, equally, don't be shouting on the page, <laughs> shouting lots of answers. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it, to have that experience of the two things coming together slightly was amazing and the men were brilliant brilliant because they're very very easy to embarrass men about lesbians you just have to say the word that is so embarrassed <laughs> <laughs> and what did they think of your tweed suits and when did because i don't think you wore the tweed suits when you no, were no, no, no. when did that start they are fantastic uh, it started as i got older and i started because I, I used to wear a lot of like leather trousers and t-shirts I remember, yeah, yeah and you know ripped jeans and skinheads and little quiffs and all that kind of thing um I think I started wearing suits in Slambassadors in about 2010 but again they weren't tweeds they were just like suits for National Poetry Day Live or you know some big event that I wanted to kind of put a show on um and just as I got older I was like actually 
I'd really like to just wear a three-piece tweed suit. I love them. And it's it's more appropriate for my age. And things have changed so radically in society in terms of the acceptance of LGBT communities that certainly, you know, the, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans clubs in school meant the kids don't give a damn. And also, I don't really work in schools in the same way anymore. I wouldn't go into school in a three-piece suit, probably. You know, well, I think you're probably the, the best dressed lesbian in in town. Actually, it reminds me of, of do you remember UA Fanthorpe? Oh yes, 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 yes. I, I thought oh, Joel's turned into Great UA Fanthorpe. <laughs> Excellent. I think I'm more David Niven. I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm always slightly disappointed at what they look like because, um, you know, you, you, I'm menopausal. You've got massive, um, ironically, enormous breasts appear when all the reproductive ability ends. Um, so, so, so the line of the suit's not so brilliant, but I'm having a suit made for me at the moment by Edward Sexton, uh, which is a beautiful tweed houndstooth, very soft material. Um, so it, that's going to be really interesting to have a bespoke suit made to see Fantastic. what that will look like. Fantastic. And so you said you don't go into schools so much now. No. Why? I mean, is it just because you're so busy? Um, yeah, I think it's about changing focus. Um, and what I noticed in myself was after sort of 20 years, um, you have to absolutely be present in that room. You, you, you cannot be thinking about yourself, about what you're missing in life, about the fact that you just turned down an appearance on the BBC to be in a primary school. You know, as it stopped being something I 100% committed to. And it, for me, my ethics, it cannot be a job. I can't be doing this mm. just for the money. You have to have full life. And it's also about making space. It's making space for a younger generation of um, poets who works in school to bring their energy and their, you know, that the surprise the first 5,000 times a kid surprises you with a poem, you know. So it's about that. And it's, a, you know, I've I started to kind of um, do more work within universities where I can <clears throat> when I'm offered it. I'm working with adults, which is great because you can swear continually. Um, and, yeah, and you don't have to keep thinking of fun things to do <laughs> every, every 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so, so what's the kind of balance of your professional life at the moment how much how much teaching how much writing how much do, what about theatre Joel what's yes. happening on that front? so we are in talks at the moment with Manchester International Festival and a couple of other places to make Kanto into this stage show and we did a scratch version of about 40 minutes of it at the Albany in Deptford in November with a cast all the four butchers were cast we made the Maryville bar again inside a snow globe and um, there's, wow, a lot of, wow. there's a lot of people, because my argument is there's never been a lesbian spectacular. Like you have gay boy spectaculars, you've got, mm. um, you know, as a, even to some extent trans spectaculars in terms of shows in Thailand, etc. But there's never been that sense of, of um, a dyke story that isn't about women in jodhpurs dying of typhoid. <laughs> Posh women in jumpers 
coughing on handkerchiefs, you know. How great would it be to just bring back these four butchers and the attendant people in, in a big haunted bar with lots of trapeze because they're, you know, why not? Um, and lots of music. I call it Kanta the musical because there's lots of music within it. So we're exploring that and I'm, I'm really desperate to do it. But as you know, the thing about theatre is it, no, the thing about poetry is you can write something and then you can read it on stage that night. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't mm. advise it, but you can. You can do that. Um, you write something in theatre and 28 years later it goes on. You know, it just takes so much time. And there's a backlog in, in obviously, shows at the moment because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of shows yeah. have been waiting to go on. So I'll know a bit more, really, at the end of this month what we're going to do. But we're hoping to tour it next year. And um, and there's other stuff as well. I've just finished a novel, which is doing the rounds, and hopefully there's a couple of offers on the table, but hopefully we'll get something tied in and be able to get that out soon. Great. Are you going to say anything about it? The Night Alphabet. It's called The Night Alphabet, and it's the story of a heavily tattooed woman who runs into a tattoo parlour with two women working in there just before it's about to close on a November night. And she asks for one more tattoo. And as they're doing it, she tells them the story of each of her tattoos. That's it. Oh. And then at the end, you find out what's so special about this space. That's it, really. It's a, it's a kind of um, speculative fiction. I call it queer futurism, which isn't a real phrase. I just thought it would impress publishers, but I, no one's mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> What about, is it, you've written short stories before, yes, haven't you? I have. So most of the stuff I've had published short story-wise has only been about 3,000, 4,000 words in length and very, very experimental. Whereas this is kind of, inter it started as a book of short stories and it just got bigger and I started to see the connections between things. And so in a sense, it's, a, it's an ensemble way of writing so that you can take things out, put other things in. You've got this strong outer structure. And I guess that way of writing really comes from theatre because you have a central idea which might be a location um, and then the various things that happen within there. Um, so it's a way of taking the short story and finding connections between each one until eventually it becomes a novel. Sounds amazing. One of the things about being a writer and in particular being a poet is that nobody expects to earn very much money. So um but uh, and poets generally have to do other things many teach poetry creative writing run workshops did you ever clearly you have not been hugely motivated by money or you would have done something differently but you have you know more than made a go of it have there been times when you've been tempted to give up yes i mean actually the th I misunderstood you. I've been tempted to give up the money. Definitely. Never the writing. Wow. I mean, um, and I have given up the money. When I left the Poetry Society, that was my only source of, you know, assured income. I was very grateful to it for so many years as a freelancer. Um, but that was in order that I could write. Giving up school workshops means that you, you take away a huge amount of income so that everything I earn really does come from writing or performing and touring 
and any projects I can try to develop. I would never, ever, ever give up writing. And, you know, it's, it's, I feel like a footballer, somebody who's just playing in the, the playground, really likes football, and then one day, <laughs> they're continually playing football like for the rest of their life. It's, a, it's such a gift and a joy. It would be amazing to earn a lot more money doing it. So that, But I'm sure you're sitting there thinking it would be amazing to earn a lot more money doing this. Because it does give you freedom. And one of the things that, that poetry has been for me is a passport that's allowed me to travel to other countries. I'm not from that background. So I was in my 30s mm. before even doing that. You know, and now I'm quite casually, I was on the phone this morning going, well, I'm at Singapore Lit Fest in November. So if I can get an offer from Australia, I'll nip over there for a couple of weeks and do some events and then I'll come back to Singapore and then I'll go on holiday. And then, do you know what I mean? And so I might not be rich, but I'm, the younger me would have thought I was a complete asshole, you know, like even thinking about those kinds of things. So I'm very privileged. You know, to be able to get, it's not something we talk about very much, I suppose, but if you're invited to an international literary festival, that's incredible. You get to see all these countries, often get paid as well. And, you know, it just widens your life. And you did a whole, well, you did a kind of world tour, but you did certainly masses in Australia mm. with Songs My Enemy Taught Me before the pandemic. Yes. What was that like? So that's the first time I went out. And really it was um, because Songs My Enemy Taught didn't attract any attention at all. In it, and I know why, but it almost kind of killed me writing it. it was because it was talking about my own abuse. But then, of course, all the research about what was happening to women globally. Um, so I just, instead of crying, I was talking to people like Selena Godden and... Zena Edwards and we were like all the old girls of rock you know we were like what we need to do girls we're not you know Instagram friendly anymore we need to get back on the road and go analog and I thought yes we do so I organized a tour through connections friendships um then thankfully got some money from the British Council to pay for our trip over there I went with my producer Tom McAndrew so he could make connections. And it was tough. It's always incredible, but tough. The second, then I got invited back a few months later, which was amazing, doing Adelaide Writers Week. And then again this year, um, this March. And this last trip was the best ever because I was put on in big venues. They were full. It wasn't me going to some mad spoken word club in the middle of the the desert. It was Sydney Opera House, the Wheeler Centre, wow. Melbourne. Queensland wow. Poetry Festival, Adelaide Writers Week. So, you know, that felt incredible to have that kind of, and just shows you, it just, it, yeah, just whatever you want to do, just keep trying to do it. And hopefully one day, you know, it's like tickling a feather against a wall, but I know one day the wall's going to laugh. You know, it's going to happen. You just got to keep pushing forward. Um, and I never knew I loved travel so much, but I do. And what advice do you give to youngsters? Because as we know, the writing life is very tough, very hard to, even even for journalists mm. now, it's extremely mm. tough. Um, and fiction writers, you know, who used to get, used to just about be able to make a living from it, can't anymore. Mm. When When you come across youngsters who say they want to be a writer, what advice do you give them? I mean, very, very simply, same advice every writer gives, write. It's the only way. 
Literally, the only way home is through whatever you write. Um, and of course, a huge part of that is reading. Um, it's the gateway drug into writing. It's the way we um, we understand the world and the way we connect with it. Um, and it, it shouldn't need to be said, but but it, it is. It does need to be said a little bit. Um, it, there are you know writers who aren't that connected to other books, I guess. I mean, so right, that's the way you learn your trade and you join the conversation by reading other books. You're going really be challenged as a writer who, if you spend your time completely alone. So I would advise joining some kind of open mic night, even if you only go to watch people and you never get up yourself. Be a part of something, join up with other writers. It's the antidote to cultural fascism is collectivism, but it's also it's the antidote to loneliness. It really is. Um, and just to keep putting your energy and work in the field, see all the possibilities of what it can do. Because what we are good at is lateral thinking. And a poem is, uh, uh, it can be, you know, it can, can become a house if it's used in the right way, if you use it to begin working in schools and to build up some a portfolio of work there and to build up some money, like I did. I mean, my flat that I owned was essentially paid for with poetry, which is impossible, isn't it? But incredible. But it's incredible. impossible. But it like literally just the, just build and build and build. Use the poems. They're keys to different things, um, and don't close yourself off. So connection, working it yourself. Don't just don't close yourself off to any idea. Well, I we will leave it there. But honestly, Joelle, it's been an absolute delight you to too, talk to mate. you. Thank you so you much. Too. Thank you, Christy. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co and do join me for another podcast next week.